Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Greenlight Guru is committed to improving the quality of life, and now we're ready to improve the quality of education and training in the medical device industry. Greenlight Guru Academy is a comprehensive training resource for anyone looking to learn industry best practices with actionable training from industry experts. You'll get on-demand courses that allow you to move at your own pace on topics related to quality and regulatory product development, design controls, risk management, doc control. Honestly, it's too many to fit into a short ad. So if you're ready to level up your medical device education, visit greenlight.guru forward slash academy today. Hey, everyone. This is Etienne Nichols. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking to Dylan Horvath. He's the founder, president, chief product officer at Cortex Design. Uh, Dylan holds a degree in system design engineering from the University of Waterloo. Cortex the company that he founded is a firm that fosters human connection, improves health outcomes, and allows people to do things they couldn't do before. So today's conversation is going to be focused on human-centered design. In his time growing Cortex into a leading product development firm, Dylan's worn almost every hat in the organization, so he can speak to a lot of different sections of the business. He's worked as an industrial designer. He's worked with firmware. He's been a PCB developer, worked on international production and uh, has made many trips to China. Uh, He's done a lot of different things. Today, Dylan provides leadership, coaching to his team. He sets strategic objectives. He provides positive work culture. He does a lot of different things. His passion seems to be human-centered design. I really enjoyed the conversation where we got talking about beauty in design. So pay attention for that. Without further ado, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is Etienne Nichols, co-host of the podcast. With me today is John Spear, the host of this podcast, founder of Greenlight Guru. Today, we also have Dylan Horvath, who is the owner and founder of Cortex Designs. And we're going to be talking maybe kind of a broad ranging topic, but the the main thing we'd like to focus on today is bringing medical devices to the home. So without a whole lot more ado, Dylan, you want to kick us off? Any comments on that so far? Yeah, for sure. So my name is Dylan. Thank you so much for uh, having me on your show. I really appreciate it. It's uh, always fun to talk about uh, design as it relates to healthcare. And that's where that's where our focus is as a firm as well. We're a full service product design firm in Toronto, and we focus on the human experience. And we frame all of the product design development work that we do through the experience that someone who's using the product is going to have with your product. The usability, I mean, it's something that's really interesting to me. It's something that also seems to be somewhat mysterious to people as far as where does it start? Where does it end? Is it a completely different subject than design? What are your thoughts and philosophies on that? Mm-hmm. Well, you can think of design in, in many different ways and what it means is different to different people. So the way we really frame it is by thinking about design as a tool for understanding how people react with technology and how people relate with technology and specifically the design of those experiences so that we can empathize and and create products that fit in with a person's lifestyle and fit in with with their experience. So when you get a new product, it's not a completely foreign object. There's familiarity with it already because it's part of, it has features that are part of your cultural landscape already. 
And um, the, the challenge when developing medical products is the people and the skill sets and the activities that um, engineers and scientists typically go through to develop a new product can be very different from the types of activities that you go through to try and get something to fit in someone's home and you know look at home on their on their kitchen counter or their or their inside their bathroom or in their bedroom which are very intimate places and and people design their environments unknowingly to sort of fit with what their the image that they want to project about themselves the two of us are probably doing that to a certain extent right now you know i've got a background that i want to reflect to the audience and you know you have this very beautiful background as well so when we start to bring medical devices into the home, we have to be cognizant of that as well and how it fits and what it says about the people who have them in there and what we want them to feel. I can see different layers of, you mentioned the word challenges. I can see different layers of that. So if, if I was an engineer, I've designed something to a certain extent before maybe coming to you or starting to think more about the the empathy or the human-led design. Hopefully I've thought about it from the beginning, but not, that's not always the case. What are the challenges you see, or maybe how do you overcome those challenges of someone being kind of married to a design or already have something in, in their mind? Well, I think it's important to understand that when you're designing a product, it, if you're designing it for yourself, you can guarantee one sale. <laughs> So what, what's important to understand is that, you know, you're, you may not be the audience that you're designing that, that is ultimately going to use this product. A lot of the best products that we do see do come from a founder's personal experience, and they may have some personal connection with the desire for creating that product out in the world. But certainly in medical and, and life science, a lot of the time, those products come from technology transfer out of academia or out of a clinical setting, a hospital, a research institution. And those are typically not very personal type of environments or, or experiences. And a lot of the time there's baked in complexity that um, starts to become a part of the product. And so our, our role is really to question some of those assumptions about why things are there or what features have been put in and the reason for them to make sure that the product is considering the, the whole environment that you want to market to rather than the clinical setting in which it was incubated. So specifically with medical device, I mean, I can see that being the case with almost, you know, any product that you want to market. Are there any specific challenges with medical devices? For sure. Clinical and medical devices, first of all, it takes a, a very skilled, talented, intelligent team that may not match everyone who's using the product. So. What comes natural and intuitive to the, the researchers and developers, especially in medical and life science, but arguably in other product categories as well, tends to be, tends to start from a place of complexity and distilling the product interaction down to the few key interactions that are actually required to, to complete a procedure or to complete a diagnostic test is something that sometimes gets considered too late in the game, um, especially if you've started to go through certifications and uh, product safety and, and you've, you've started to lock down what you can change because the cost of going back and redoing it after discovering a fault can be very expensive and very time consuming and, and may not meet your market launch requirements. 
So it's important to consider, okay, we have this, this framework and this very strict regulatory process to follow, but at the end of that process, are we coming out with something that can be used and people want to use and people don't feel ashamed to use and doesn't hurt people? You know, <laughs> hopefully we're reducing pain points uh, along the way, whether those are, um, you know, perceived or, or mental pain points or, you know, in the case of medical procedures, they can, can be actual pain that's, uh, that's involved. Yeah, you know, Dan, I'm reminded of uh, a few years ago or, or actually quite a few years ago or up to this point in my career, most of uh, everything that I had developed from a med device perspective was going to be used and in a controlled setting, generally the OR or, you know, certainly in a hospital-like setting. And I think up to this point too, the user was a healthcare professional, but I was uh, helping uh, work with a startup on a device that was going to be prescribed essentially to the patient and be with them on their person, you know, in the bag or some way for everywhere they went because of the type of therapy that it was of the product. And that's when I started to realize you really have to design things differently because you just the jargon or the terminology that you use, the healthcare provider may speak one language, but the, the, the home, the person in their home wearing this device, they may not speak the jargon or they may not understand. So really, uh, you know, kind of forces you to think about that user interface in a huge way and what information you're sharing with that, that patient in a, in a huge way. So there is quite a bit of difference, I, at least that I found. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And broadly, what it means for that person who's carrying that product or if it's wearable, that's something that, you know, becomes very closely, literally connected with them. And, um, you know, a halter monitor is a good, a good example. This is something that is very embarrassing to wear, like if, and something that you have to wear for uh, a long period of time where like, unless you're sequestering yourself to your home for the, the duration of a diagnostic test, people are, people are going to see you and you have to make all these kind of affordances in order for it to, uh, in order for the not a stigma of wearing it out in the world. You know, seeing all these cables poking out from your from under your shirt or under your shirts uh, or belt loop or whatever. So sometimes small changes right at the beginning can have like a really big impact on what the what the adherence is to a diagnostic procedure, for example. I'm sure being in the field that you've you're in right now, um, you've probably seen a lot of different pitfalls, maybe the wrong way to do it. Do you have any examples of that? You know, I, I like to learn from what not to do sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and you know, I want to be careful not to not to call out any any sure. uh, clients uh, that we've that we've worked for in the past, but I think you can you can see a lot of the times when there's evidence of something that isn't well designed. One cue that's really helpful if you're in an operating room, for example, and you look around at the suite of equipment, anything that has a label on it that someone else has added, that's a good indication that there's been a gap in the, uh, in the design process. There are no affordances on that device for providing the information that now someone has felt is pertinent enough to stick a label on. Um, so... What we look for, especially early stage, is what are the sort of unexpected behaviors or what are some of the affordances where if you're looking at that person operating, 
you may have an assumption about why it is that they're doing that that thing, like writing a label on a on a uh, infusion device, for example. Um, but if you go and dig a little bit further and ask them, then you can start to get some insights or ideas about improvements that could be made. So you mentioned some words there. Just I, I thought maybe it'd be good for us to establish a little bit of nomenclature. I I recognize what your like affordances and signifiers from mm -hmm. was that book, uh, Design of Everyday Things. Can you give us some That's some right. uh, I guess definitions examples? around some of the stuff? Yeah, yeah, examples, definitions. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I mean, objects tell you how to interact with them. So you know, an affordance is um, a handle, for example. So a handle is telling someone who looks at that door or looks at that opening, that this is the point of interaction. So if you, if you have a handle, that tends to mean you need to pull. If you have a knob, that means you're to twist. If you have a button, that means to push. We also infer things based on color. You know, red means one thing. It could be, and it means different things to different people too. So, you know, a red button to someone in a plant, could mean e-stop, you know, emergency stop. You got to shut the piece of equipment down, and that's used in, in medical devices as well. Um, green may be to proceed, um, or green may be a positive check. Um, so, when you're making aesthetic decisions, especially in medical devices, you have to be aware that the you know your aesthetic choices may impact someone's perceived way in which they want to interact with it. So yeah, those, those, those are affordances and you want to design in the affordances, which will inform the user of the proper way to use something. It could be, you know, color coding points of interaction, making those surfaces or making those um, handles or latches really inform the person about how to use them rather than leaving it up to an instruction for use manual. So when you go upstream of this, though, so you talk about affordances like uh, a handle being something you push down to open or a, a knob, you know, you twist it. We learned that from an early age. And similarly with, I guess, with the color, maybe the color's inherent. I'm not exactly sure. There seems to be a lot of psychology there. Can you, is it an affordance? Because that's, that's what the entire, you know, our culture is aware of, you know, knob and things like that. Is there something even more instinctual or could there be, or, or how do you determine whether there could be something um, besides that i don't know does that make sense what i'm asking <laughs> yeah and you know sometimes um i would say like a big a big temptation is to provide affordances for everything that you might want to do on on a product and that can be quite overwhelming so when you have you know too many knobs too many buttons a piece of software that has lots of menus or lots of interactions that isn't guiding you through the choices that you need to make at that particular time. You know, the, I think user experience is very often thought about through screen-based interactions. A lot of the user experience even, or even what is called like a product design job now is virtual or it's, or it's screen-based. Whereas with, with hardware, you, you can have, you'll often need to make a choice about what it is that you want the hardware to do for the person versus things that are faster or you know close the loop faster if if a person does them you know for example we did um we did a, a diagnostic system that involved adding some liquid to to an assay so that's typically something actually you know a really good example is um, 
the rapid test, the rapid COVID-19 test, which suddenly everyone is intimately familiar with, whether you want to be or not. But, you know, this is a medical device that someone is, is interacting with. So everyone is familiar now with having to add um, drops of a buffer solution to a paper-based assay. Like here's, here's one that I did today, right? So you're adding drips to this and then the signal's migrating across. So um, this is not an automated system. This is a very manual system and it's very inexpensive. And there's lots of benefits to that. If you're trying to do that in an automated system, you know, you have the choice of whether or not you want that buffer solution to be added mechanically or electromechanically and take that uh, variability out of the system that would otherwise be placed on a user. So, and it will have all sorts of trade-offs if you do that. You know, you'll, you're going to lengthen your product development time. Now you're going to have to add a buffer solution reservoir in, in the device rather than a person grabbing a bottle and squeezing it out themselves. You know, you have this really amazing machine at your disposal all the time. You know, your hands, your eyes, your brain. And as a product designer, you have to make a choice about what you are willing to load a person up with and what you can take off of them as a burden for a more successful product. So, and, that, and that's a hard choice. That's a hard choice a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Dylan, I, I got to imagine that in your role as a, as a product designer, I mean, you may not describe it this way, but I got to imagine you're, you're uh, applying a lot of uh, risk management um, method, methodologies to your approach and your decision-making process. You know, just going through the, the example that you just mentioned, you know, the user error is, is diminished if, if more of that system would, were, were to be automated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not pragmatic. Uh, so now you have to design a workflow that's very manual, very hands-on. But I got to imagine at the same time, now your risk for user error now increases. It's like, how do you, how do you balance all of these? How, how do you, you know, weigh and, and make the, these, these types of decisions that go into the product design? Exactly. And that's, and that's the trick. And the way to make those decisions is with constraints. So, you know, you have constraints, you have economic constraints of what you as a company can afford to develop and where you see merit. You have regulatory constraints about what you actually are allowed to do to get an approved FDA approved medical device out in the market. And you have, you have market constraints about when that product can be ready as well. And all of these choices do introduce risk and, and um, not just product risk, but, um, but company risk. There may be risk to having a successful device deployment, but if you mitigate that risk too much, you may miss the window for market acceptance, or you may have a competitor come that you know is already working on these problems and they close faster because they took a few shortcuts that you didn't want to do. So um, having a really good conversation about those risks and realistically what it is that we can, we can do within, within those constraints is, is part of what needs to be done right at, right up at the front of an engagement. And you know, the biggest problems come in when, when it's done too late and when, the, uh, when those realizations come in too late. 
I think it's a big, it's a strong argument for getting those things taken care of early on. You know, in life, there's some no matter what's, you know, no matter what, you're going to have to pay taxes sooner or later, sort of that sort of thing. You know, there's lots of different things like that. When it comes to medical devices, no matter what, one of the no matter what's is you're going to have to validate your your user needs. You're going to have to validate the product meets those things. So you'd mentioned making those design decisions early on and then moving through the design process. Um, it sounds like those clearly, and maybe a better word is accurately defined user needs is one of the most important parts of your process. Would you agree or can you elaborate on that? Again, within constraints, you have to make some educated guesses and look at the data in front of you and, and make a decision and ultimately go down that decision and live with the choice of that initial decision. But you mentioned user validation. That's a really important step that people love to skip um, because once you made a decision and you feel like it's got some merit within your own development team, it's, it's hard to pause and it's hard to go back and say, okay, let's take a look if, if we've made good assumptions here. As inherently, there's going to be um, some bias within the team of a choice that's made. And you know, expense that has been incurred to make that decision as well. Um, but I would say that was one of the biggest pitfalls of product development is not going back and validating that a user will understand the choices that you've made in, in, in a product development process. So it's really, I, they may go through the exercise of validation just to show that their user needs, but it almost sounds like what you're saying is they need to, uh, it, it really needs to inform the design. And oftentimes that is not the case. You either pass, fail, tweak a little bit and, and maybe pass at that point. But what really needs to happen is go evaluate. Do those user needs, are those really what they should have been? Is Am I understanding that right? Or any thoughts there? For sure. For sure. Because you need to set certain rules to make decisions. And sometimes when we're being brought into a, a client's work, we'll start to question where those assumptions came from just to just to test them a little bit because it's not obvious you know sometimes having completely green eyes on something is really helpful and the assumption may be made to to de-risk something or it may just be made because somebody had to say a decision you know someone had to make a decision to go forward and you know those decisions may have impact like we're working with a company right now that is developing a mechatronic system that um, has articulated joints and the degree of freedom is limited um, at, at each joint. Um, like the, the amount of rotation or the angle of rotation is limited. I'm trying to speak in general terms here. And that was one of the questions that we asked, why is it limited to 22 degrees? Why isn't it you know, 22 and a half? Why isn't it 45? And, and we found out that there actually wasn't a really strong reason for that. It was at that time of prototyping what was convenient to develop. And then that became baked into the product. Whereas a higher angle of rotation means that the product can do a lot more with fewer pieces. And so, you know, catching it at that time and pushing back and checking some assumptions can be a really helpful exercise for a client that's been developing things in a certain way for a long period of time. Makes a lot of sense. So I'm just thinking about, you know, starting from, from the beginning with those user needs all the way to the end, think about that whole process. 
I didn't go too much into into your background necessarily, but with the systems engineering, how would you say that that background or or that training kind of mm -hmm. put that in you? Or well, so my background is in engineering, but an engineering degree, systems de systems design engineering from University of Waterloo, which which teaches um, a particular approach to um, engineering problems to think of things in a systems context. And, uh, and my background up until that point and, and throughout university and, and, and beyond was really developing technology systems and automation systems, um, mechatronic systems. I was, I was heavily involved in robotics. And one of the things that I sort of had this uh, light bulb moment or, or perhaps a crisis where I realized that the systems that I was developing and reasons, I didn't really have a reason for developing those systems. And I realized that like a lot of my work was not involved with people. And, and what I was really interested in was, was having, was the interaction between people and systems. And I'd never heard of industrial design uh, at that point. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a program that was offered by University of Waterloo. And wasn't on my radar for for whatever reason. Anyway, I discovered that as a discipline, and that was a real light bulb moment where I realized there was a whole discipline that dealt with this very problem of you know how it is that people interact with technology and what the what those gaps are. Um, and so I, I dove into that type of work, but with this technology background. And um, you know, for the first for the first few years of starting Cortex, I was really just trying to find an excuse to create beautiful objects that had a technology feature that gave me a little bit of a leg up on, you know, the other industrial designers I was competing with at the time to really have things that were, that were unique in the world and created brand new experiences. And as the years rolled in or rolled on, I should say, I really got interested in medical systems because of the opportunity for improving lives. And, and that's, that's what's, uh, that, that's our philosophy to this day, you know, applying technology and our knowledge and, and uh, our knowledge of humanities to solving tangible human pain points in medical. So John and I had recently had a conversation with, uh, um, one of our, um, product owners, Andrew DeMeo, actually, and about Zen and the art of motor, motorcycle maintenance. And I don't know if every engineer comes to a crisis at some point or not, <laughs> uh, but you mentioned a few things in there that really piqued my interest, I guess. One being uh, the, you wanted to create beautiful objects that you know had this technology purpose. And I know it's kind of a pendulum. You, some engineers, they want to build something that it's going to do what it's supposed to do. It may be you know, built out of 80-20 aluminum extrusion and you search around and find the buttons, you know, you have no idea how to interact with it, but it does something amazingly well. Uh, and you feel the other object, you know, the other direction, it could just be something beautiful, but doesn't actually do anything. But what role does beauty play? I mean, I, I don't mean to pick on you for using that word, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. No, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, beauty is so subjective. It's very difficult to create something that is universally beautiful or considered beautiful by, by everyone who may want to use it. But there is beauty in well-functioning devices. From an engineering background, engineers will find something beautiful because it works, but they may not have the same perspective as someone who wants to see that, see that thing in their home. I mean, 
Zen and the, motor, the art of motorcycle maintenance. You know, I know industrial designers who have motorcycles in their living room, you know, because they're so beautiful, right? And not everyone's going to like that, including, you know, sometimes their partners. But the thing that is, is beautiful is when something considers how it appears and how it lives with the people that, that have it. And certainly in, in, in medical devices, there's, there's, beauty in, there's beauty in a highly, a product that really considers how it's going to be interacted with and um, doesn't, doesn't embarrass you to have um, and doesn't make you feel uh, cold or alone or in danger um, as you approach it. And, you know, there are, there are aesthetics and aesthetic tools that can be employed for that. And you know, it's, it's a very emotional response that uh, we have. You know, we are emotional beings and our, our emotional function is actually a much more powerful brain function than our logic functions. You know, our, we use our emotional response to justify logic. So it's important to consider that initial emotional response and, and beauty is part of it. I was a little bit circuitous, I guess, but... Uh, Sounds good. Many, many, many years ago, I remember one of some of my first interactions with some industrial design uh, folks. And some of my experiences went sort of like this, Dylan, where industrial designer presented images. And, you know, this, you know, we had 3D CAD, but, you know, the, it was, you know, the, a lot of the, the 3D prototyping and all the things that we have available to us, readily available to us now were they were around they were a novelty they weren't they weren't everyday ubiquitous part of the process per se but you know you get some concepts from from a design from a product and you know looking at wow that's beautiful there's there is beauty in this this thing this medical device and then you start to figure out okay tooling and how we're going to make this and all too often unfortunately i was handed uh, designs that were not able to be manufactured in a way mm-hmm. that was pragmatic. And it's like, oh, you know, we, 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 we had a disconnect somewhere along the line where you gave me a beautiful design that cannot be made. Mm-hmm. Uh, we cannot fabricate tooling to, you know, injection mold this part or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know this is in every discipline for sure, but how do you address, I mean, is that a stigma in, in your space? And how do you address that? Because, mm-hmm. you know, there's got to yeah, be the well, right balance, you know? Design only works within the constraints in which can be successful as a product. And part of that success is, is manufacturing success. And having a team that understands that is, is really critical. On the flip side, if all you're considering is manufacturability and you're not considering what the perception of that product is going to be um, when it's opened up, unwrapped, taken out of the box, it will also fail. So you can't get away with one or the other but I totally understand or can empathize with that frustration. Sometimes we've gotten products or taken over products from, from firms that are strictly aesthetic. And, you know, blue sky concepts. Blue sky concepts are interesting, but you have to recognize the, the skill of the team that, that is executing on those. Um, you know, industrial design, I think, from its root was really about manufacturing. And being able to work with modern tools to create um, products that were that were unique and and um, human centered, um, but were very manufacturable. And I think um, now it's 
not as common to, to do manufacturing onshore, for example. And so a lot of the interest and education that occurs in, in North America um, doesn't have that manufacturing focus. So, you know, that is something that, uh, that, that we really place a great deal of value on right at the beginning stages. And, and um, we're responsible for manufacturing a lot of the products that we design. So if it's not manufacturable, it's going to hit us. <laughs> and it's not in our best interest to, uh, to blue sky things that are then impossible to, uh, to, to produce. So I think it speaks to alignment. You know, it's really, it's really good to have clear expectations and clear alignment within your team of what it is that you're, that you're trying to achieve and what your, what your scope is to do that. Yeah, totally. there, can be, there can be great value in doing blue sky explorations. And sometimes that sets the product intent or creates some questions to assumptions that you may have made, like, wouldn't it be great if but it does need to be grounded and brought back to how are we going to actually do this and prototype it and, and get it up, get it out into volume manufacturing. Do you find that when you work in, in the life sciences, I mean, sometimes I think there's this perception that novelty and uniqueness, it may be what I, what I want from a product positioning perspective, but making that or going in that direction can be challenging from a regulatory perspective. Mm -hmm. And so you, you know, you're forced with these um, decisions or these choices, these potential compromises where maybe I, 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 I can see where incorporating this feature or, or this, this element of this product would give me some uniqueness, but that's going to create too many obstacles and barriers when I go to prepare a submission for FDA. I mean, how do you balance that? Yeah, absolutely. We were working on a project with um, with someone who it, it, it involved uh, oral swabs, like saliva collection. And in order to do that, in order to do the diagnostic process, it would be really great to have an oral swab that um, was designed in a, in a unique manner and had some features in it that would allow processing the saliva in a particular manner. However, to go down that development path was prohibitive and to to go through just the the regulatory on that portion of it uh was prohibitive and you know there are commercial off-the-shelf devices that's um that would that would perform that not exactly the way we would like it to but the barrier to do it exactly the way we would like it to meant two or three years and two or three million dollars of development effort so being realistic with what can be achieved within economic constraints and, and market constraints, those, those, are, those are when some of those decisions come in. It would be great if, however, within the constraints of the regulatory system and the costs that are, that are involved, we, we need to follow some standards. Or you know, stand on the, on the shoulders of another product that did this particular component that's important, but not a key part of our, our IP. So some of what we've talked about is, I think, directly applicable to an engineer level, a team level, is there any advice you can give to organizations? Like if you were to zoom out just a little bit to give an overall organization a sense or a, uh, a way to achieve this at a cultural, in a cultural way, I mean, any, any advice on an organizational level? Mm -hmm. That is a, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, and identifying it as a, as a cultural uh, issue as well, because, you know, there can be, there can be strain when you have competing constraints. So, you know, if you have, 
if you've hired someone to do concept developments and then it's sent off to another engineering firm to make it real. And then you have a regulatory consultant over here who has their agenda as well to get it through market acceptance and regulatory acceptance. Those can be three very competing agendas. And what we've tried to do is create an organization where all of that is in-house. So, and build that culture as, as our own internal team, where we're helping each other rather than, rather than hindering each other and enabling each other rather than, rather than striking down ideas that could be really good. One of the little tricks that we use when we're developing new ideas, especially in the very early stage, is all ideas can be good. And all ideas are precious little things that are easily damaged. And you have to, you have to present them from a, a place of safety in order to speak them, in order to give birth to them and let them, let them live for a little while and see whether or not there's, there's something there. So one of the things that we try to do is for our regulatory person who may be involved in an industrial design discussion, rather than saying why something won't work, why someone else's idea won't work, the, the trick and the mind game is to use your experience to amplify other people's ideas. So we say you can knock your own ideas down, but you have to use your experience to amplify other people's ideas, even if you think they're lousy. And through that, you can start to get these a really multidisciplinary approach to growing solutions. And then, and then you all work together on the execution side to see if those, um, if those assumptions are, are valid and um, if there's sort of a growing resonance and excitement throughout the product development process that, yes, we've got something. This is great. That was a really key realization. And, um, you know, through each stage, you know, this is kind of risk mitigation as well. You're, you're mitigating risk by checking the boxes. And, you know, as you're checking the boxes, you're, you're getting excited and, and um, going through those stages of development towards a market launch. I love the idea of that cross development or that cross cross functional team from the very beginning. Uh, I had one mentor in my career at one point, he said, because product development and quality, they can, you know, I don't know where it is everywhere, but in some of the places I've been, you know, they can butt heads a little bit, you know, I want to do mm -hmm. this and quality's like, nope. Uh, one, one man told me, he's like, well, they can be police or they can be partners. You need to treat them like a partner and you'll mm -hmm. get a lot further. And uh, so the partnership versus police, I, uh, concept helped me a lot. And it sounds like similar to what you're saying. But I think it goes back to what you're, you're ringing up a moment ago. You know, it's gotta be, it's gotta be cultural, at least at some level, right? The uh, situations where quality and, and the engineering product development engineering may not be getting along so well, that's also cultural. Mm -hmm. you know, it's been allowed to, to exist that way, you know, and it's like, how do you break down those barriers? So Oh yeah. And, and between sales, right? Like sales yeah. and sales and engineering. Oh my goodness. Sales sold this thing. They said that this company, our company is going to be able to do this thing. We don't know how to do that. That salesperson is nuts. So having the, having the engineers integrated in the sales process is something that's really important to us. And, yeah. um, and, you know, so that there's not only buy-in from the engineering team on, on something that we're, that we're suggesting we may want to do for this client, but also that for the clients, they're speaking with the, the engineering team that's actually going to make this make this real. And you know those 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 relationships develop uh, early on as well. So you know you know what you know the culture that you're stepping into. 
Yeah. But absolutely. Like, and, and that goes to vendors as well, or, or customers for us. Not all customers see life the same way that, that we do. And one of the things that I think is important is to see whether or not you do have compatibility on values before getting too far down a development process. And so, you know, we try to make those values really transparent so that it's either going to create resonance or dissonance. And if it creates dissonance, that's okay. Because the project is probably not going to go that well if you don't have alignment on values. Well, I'll just read what you have above you because I think it kind of sums up some of that. People deserve a better experience. And I, one company I was with, they did some of this personality training or whatever. You know, the different engineers, we, we all fall in different categories. One guy, he was a very dominant personality. And someone asked, he said, well, I get things done. He said, yeah, you got things done, but Sally's got a black eye and Tom over there is unconscious. You know, <laughs> um, you know, if you, we want right. to solve a problem, you know, an, an indication for use, you know, you want to do that, but you also want to do it in a way that uh, is pleasing to use and, and, and is not going to cause uh, misuse and things like that. But I don't know, mm -hmm. I'm sure you could be a little more eloquent than I, but mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it can be a challenge for senior engineers or, or senior designers where, you know, they they may feel they've already experienced all the risks and experienced all the pitfalls, and so they know the way. And um, the trick is to allow those people to, or encourage those people to listen rather than speak right away and and amplify rather than consume. It's very difficult for someone to get good if their ideas are slammed or if they're or if they're not shown um shown by example how things can how things can be improved um and it's also impossible to listen to new ideas if you're not open to it so um you know young staff have uh, have great experience and great cultural experience and um um awareness of of trends that you know older older or more senior staff may not may not have um, they just don't have the clarity to to go from A to B so quickly. So, um, you know, I think I think there's a role for 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 both staff. But yeah, absolutely. Like if there's if there's um, if you have a person who is demeaning or um, shuts people down too quickly in a conversation, that's a that's a culture killer. And um, you know, they they may be really terrific, but um, they're you know leaving a trail of dead bodies behind them, then they, they can't really be there. Yeah. Yeah. Teamwork is definitely more powerful situation where one plus one can equal three. Yep. So, yeah. And you see it sometimes with clients where there's a trail of dead firms behind them as well. <laughs> you know, that's a red flag too. It's like, what, how come that didn't work out nine times? <laughs> and, you know, there's maybe a great new technology or great new science, but, um, you know, it's taken 20 years to get into the market. Why is that? You know, sometimes that, that reflection is important. Very cool. I don't know that I have any other questions because we're kind of coming up on time here. I could probably talk about this a lot, especially the how to capture beauty. That's that's always been elusive, you know, in, in design. But like you said, uh, I, I guess I'll just repeat one thing you said early on. And that is, you know, if you design something for yourself, you're guaranteed one customer. Um, I thought that was really good. That was a good point. I'm going to probably not forget that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like kill your darlings, you know be okay with your idea not being the best one, um, it's, it's going to be helpful. And, um, you know, be open to someone suggesting a, a, a better way to, to do the same thing. Um, and it's really difficult, right? Um, like you actually have to work at it. Everyone has a desire to have the right solution, 
But from my point of view, having a team that can produce the right solution from many influences and many, many points of view is a, is a real point of strength. John, any last words? I just appreciate you know, Dylan, your insights and sort of, you know, the, the sharing some of the philosophies. I, I think design is really important, uh, in, in our everyday lives. And usually we, I think we know it when there's good design, but not a conscious thing, maybe, I, but we do know when it's a bad design. Mm-hmm. Um, because we we talk about that, you know, we you know we complain about you know why wow, this, this just doesn't work the way I would expect it and that sort of thing. So I think just you know for those listening, realize that you have a responsibility when you're involved in the design and development of a product. And I like Dylan's North Star, or at least that's how I interpret it, because it's very similar to mine. Is we have this opportunity to improve the quality of life. And, and I think doing so um, with well-thought-out design to improve outcomes is uh, you know, something we should all strive for in the product development space. Yeah, I appreciate that, John. I mean, I think we can choose to do many things with our lives. And ultimately, you, know, you, have, a, you have your interests and you have your skill sets and, and you have your passions. So what I look for is people that are passionate about this pursuit because then you can get great alignments and great results. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you, John. Thank you, Etienne. Yeah, thank you. Dylan, where, where can people go to find out more about you and the work you're doing? Well, the easiest place is on, uh, on the web. So www.cortex-design.com is our, our site. And also on LinkedIn, if you um, are in the habit of perusing content on LinkedIn, we talk a lot about our approach to design and our methodology and what's going on in the company on LinkedIn. So before you, before you engage, take a little, take a little peruse at the things that we write about. If it feels good, you should get in touch with us. Great. Well, thank you. I'll just echo what John said. Appreciate you spending some time with us today. And for those of you listening, you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is powered by Greenlight Guru, the only medical device success platform that is specifically designed for medical devices. So encourage you to go check it out at www.greenlight.guru. Thanks everybody. Have a great day. The best medical device companies don't just follow the rules. They lead with quality. At Greenlight Guru, we try to do the same. Our medical device success platform is based on the latest FDA and ISO standards, as well as the best practices of medical device manufacturers who lead the industry with products of the highest quality. If you're ready to bring safer, better medical devices to market faster, contact greenlight.guru today.